All right. Acts chapter 16 is my favorite passage of scripture. I really enjoy Acts and I enjoy the book of Mark because they're books that are full of action. And uh, I, have, I have used this text before. I've actually spoken in church uh, three or four times over the past 10 or 15 years. And some of you that remember uh, us being in the old sanctuary remember that I actually spoke out of Acts 16 back then. Uh, and I've also touched on this in Sunday school. But I'm told that it's more important for us to be reminded of things that we know than to learn new things. So bear with me. And if you say, hey, I was here 10 years ago and I remember this, just, just listen and see if it's not different, okay? And let me give you an example. Who remembers what Newton's third law of motion is? You all learned this. I'm sure of it. Who remembers what Newton's third law of motion is? Yeah, nobody. Oh, one person. For, what's your name? Josh knows what Newton's third law is, and so do you. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And all of you start saying it now that, now that you've remembered. So stick with me. If you remember me speaking out of Acts chapter 16 in the other building 10 years ago, you may need to hear it again. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for what it says to us. We're grateful for the fact that we can read it over and over without fear in this country. And Lord, as we look into your word today, I ask that you would help us to examine ourselves. And if there is something that needs to be changed, that you would help us to make the commitment to change it today. In your name I ask. Amen. So we read in our scripture reading, Acts chapter 16, Paul gets the Macedonian call and he goes and immediately they have some success. They meet Lydia and uh, she believes and life is kind of good, okay? Paul is out there on his missionary journey, but they've got a place to stay. They have receptive converts. This is good, right? And I think a lot of times when we receive Christ as our Savior, that's kind of what we expect, we expect, okay, I see Christians, and they seem to live a comfortable life. They seem to be not in trouble. They don't seem to be in jail on a regular basis. This is good. But what happened next? Paul and Silas were walking about. Let's look in verse 16. They were going to prayer, and a certain girl possessed with the spirit of divination met them and brought her masters much gained by soothsaying, and she followed Paul and Silas and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And I'm sure that this was in a mocking way. Okay? She was telling the truth, but in a mocking way. And Paul, I think he got a little tired of it, and he turned around, and look what he did. Verse 18. She did this many days. Paul, being grieved, turned around and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the Spirit came out of the girl the same hour. So there's an action. Paul does something that is good. Does anyone dispute the fact that it was good that Paul did this? No. Paul did something good. But then there was a reaction. What was the reaction? Well, her master said, hey, look, she used to tell us, uh, she used to tell fortunes, and that's how we made our money, and now we're going to go broke. Thanks a lot. They dragged her in front of the magistrates and uh, brought them into the market and said, these people are Jews. They do exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up together with, against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. 
So they got stripped in the public square and beaten and thrown in jail. Now, Newton's third law says that there's an equal and opposite reaction. I want to I just point out, when you serve God, the reaction is not always going to be equal and opposite. Sometimes it's going to be way overblown. Why? I was listening to the radio this week, and I heard Alistair Begg say this phrase, and, and I, you know, I was just kind of, you know how you're driving and you're listening, but you're not really listening, but when he said this, I went, whoa, I can remember that. He said, when God's people do God's work in God's way, you can expect opposition. When God's people do God's work in God's way, you can expect opposition, and it's not going to be equal and opposite, and many times it's going to be like a huge overreaction. Paul and Silas did a good thing, and yet they got kicked in the teeth for it. Action gives you a reaction. We know how this works. I mean, this is, everybody knows this. People have written songs about this. You guys probably know this song too. You don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't pull the mask off the Lone Ranger and you don't mess around with. Why? Because actions bring reactions. Whenever there's an actual, there's an e- action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Paul and Silas acted and then there was a reaction to them. Now, that reaction was an action in and of itself. And that allowed Paul and Silas the opportunity to give their own reaction. Are you with me so far? They were stripped, they were beaten, they were falsely imprisoned. That was an action. How would you react if that happened to you? Yeah, Lincoln is like, I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah, I think that most of us would be tempted to react in the flesh. Let's look real quick at Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be in and out of Galatians 5 uh, over the course of the next several minutes. But let's look how, how these reactions work. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. We'll start there. And um, the writer of Galatians is talking about the difference between reacting in the flesh and reacting in the spirit. And he says, The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit works against the flesh. These are contrary one to another, so that you can't do the things that you would normally do. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and things like this, of the which I would tell you, I I told you before, as I have also told you in the time past, They which do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a big long list of how people normally react to life as it comes at them. And our normal reaction when stresses like this come against us is what? Anger, wrath, envy, jealousy, Uh, drunkenness was in there. You know, some people, I've got a friend, He's a Christian, he believes in God, but man, he cannot make it through his day without some alcohol in his system to anesthetize him to what is happening around him. That is the normal reaction to pain. But let's keep reading. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. When we become saved... When the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us, he begins a change in our life. And we have then a choice. Do we react in the flesh? Do we do what comes naturally? Which sounds like great advice, but isn't. Okay? Or do we respond in the power of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. 
Now, as we live our Christian life, we should have actions that provoke reactions. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 is a familiar verse. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. You, you get that? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus created unto good works. And these good works aren't just things we do spontaneously. God has ordained them before that we should walk in them. He's planned them out. He has a plan for what he wants you to do after you have been saved. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, is a charge. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is a work. That is something that God expects us to do. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. We're going to talk about Matthew 5 in, in just a minute. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father that is in heaven. We should have actions as Christians that provoke reactions. We should be in the public square, and our good works should reflect and glorify God. And people should react to that. If they don't, we have to ask ourselves some questions about how effective we really are and what we're actually doing for God. We should have actions that provoke reactions. When God's people are doing God's work in God's way, we will not go unopposed. So in the scripture reading today, we saw how Paul's action had this massive opposition, this massive overreaction. And the opposition allowed him and Silas a chance to react. How did they react? Look at, look at verse 25 of Acts chapter 16. They were beaten, they were stripped in the public square, and then they were thrust into stocks, which are very uncomfortable, and put in prison. And it wasn't a prison... Uh, like today, prisons are never good. So I say that knowing that prison is not a great place to be today. But this was probably uh, a little less pleasant even than that. And at midnight, verse 25, around midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. They reacted to it in a totally different way than would normally be expected. They prayed and sang praises to God. The normal reaction to pain is to avoid what causes it. I walked into the bathroom this morning and one of my daughters was standing there crying. My wife was fixing her. I said, what, what, what just happened here? She touched the, the curling iron. I warned her not to. Are you ever going to do that again? No. Okay. The normal reaction to pain is to avoid doing what causes pain. The normal reaction to injustice is what? Yeah, to protest. I have my rights, that sort of thing. Yeah, Jared, you know what I'm talking about. J. Vernon McGee, uh, you may hear him on the, the radio. I heard him on the radio too, and he was talking about Acts chapter 10, verse 28, where it says that God gave Jesus the spirit of power, and Jesus went about doing good. And J. Vernon, in his very unique way, said, I know a lot of people today, they spend a lot of time going about, but they've sort of forgotten about the doing good part. And I think that's true with us, too. We spend a lot of time going about, but we don't spend a lot of time necessarily doing good. We don't spend a lot of time necessarily witnessing. We don't necessarily spend a lot of time helping people with their problems and then relating that back to our salvation testimony. Remember Matthew 5? We talked about let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify God because of them. 
a lot of times, sometimes I think we do a lot of things and when people say, oh, that was so nice of you, we're like, yes, it was. You know, we get the glory instead of God. Protesting, political activity, etc., all that has, it, has its place. And I don't want to get bogged down here because I know that many of you are very sensitized to political, act, political activity right now. But God hasn't necessarily called us to that. He has called us unto good works. Uh, just this morning in Sunday school, Jerry was, was pointing out the fact that, you know, God never tells us to really fight back at sin in, in a certain sense. If you read in Scripture, it says, avoid those that do evil. Avoid the paths of sin. It says, flee temptation. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, talking about uh, you know, kings and those that are in authority, it says to pray for them so that we can live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. Not, not, quiet and peaceable is not you know, marching on wherever. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic here. There is a real... Um, there's a real need to speak the truth, and the truth will receive opposition, and sometimes that will bring us into conflict with other individuals, but we need to do it in a Christ-like way. And frankly, we need to spend more time preaching the gospel and doing good than working in political causes. Those of you that disagree with me, you can come yell at me later. That's fine. But our premise for the morning is this. When our actions provoke opposition, our reactions must be unexpected. They must be different from what would normally be. We must offer praise to God for the situation that we land in. And that visible response has to glorify God. It can't glorify us. And this is important. This is important for a couple reasons that you can see right here in Acts chapter 16. Interestingly, we're sitting, like I say, in Sunday school. By the way, if you're not coming to Sunday school uh, or Bible life groups at 9.15, it's a great time. And it's fascinating how oftentimes what's said in there dovetails unexpectedly with what God is working on from the pulpit in church. We were talking about Joseph. Joseph's story, you can see these same points that we're going to talk about in Joseph's story or in Job's story uh, or in others in the Bible. So why is this important? Why is it important that we praise the Lord even in the face of opposition? Why is it important that our reactions to actions taken against us for our testimony for Christ reflect God? First of all, it's going to impact the people around us. Our reaction to opposition will impact people around us. And I see two different groups of people in this story that are impacted. Let's look first at our fellow Christians, Paul and Silas. Look at verse 25 of Acts. Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Now, I don't want to overblow this point, but having a buddy when you're doing anything just makes it easier, just makes it better, okay? Yesterday, we had a lawn tractor breakdown out here, and I was standing there looking at it, and I was, I'm, I was not happy. I was thinking of extra work we have to do, so on and so forth. And John just happened to be here, and he pulls his truck around, and he's like, what's going on? the lawn tractor blew up. He goes, oh. And we started looking at it together, and you know, he's like, oh, you know what? I'm sure we can fix this. This is a, this is a good motor, and this, that, and he knows more about motors than I do. And just his presence there encouraged me. We need to be encouraging each other in our Christian walk. Dr. Henry Cloud, he's a Christian psychiatrist, and he's written several books, and I've heard him speak, and, and you know, here and there. He tells a story. I heard him tell this story. He says, there's a research group that did this experiment with monkeys. 
And he said they took two monkeys that were in the same cage. They were bonded. They were friends, okay? And they took one monkey and put it off by itself, and they subjected it to a really stressful environment. They flashed lights at it and, you know, loud music and so on and so forth, and they measured the stress level of this monkey. And it went through the roof, okay? Heart rate, respiration rate, you know, agitation, just crazy. And they kept this up, and it didn't get any better. And they took the monkey back, and they put it, Put it back in the cage. Can you imagine? These poor monkeys. They put the monkey back in the cage, and then they did it again. And the monkey's respiration rate went through the roof, and he was all stressed out. But they took the second monkey and put it in that same cage with all the flashing lights. And you know what they found? The stress level of the first monkey dropped onto near normal levels. And he, he, he's very pithy. He says, who's your monkey? You know? But I'm serious. All of us need others in our life when stressful situations come along when you when you uh, speak the gospel when you do something good and something someone comes back at you it's always better to have someone in your cage with you a fellow believer who will speak encouragement to you that's why when we go witnessing we don't send people out one by one do we not usually god didn't send them out one by one he sent them out two by two okay take Two people, it's much less stressful to stand there and ring on the doorbell and who knows who's coming to the door when you've got someone next to you. So first of all, Paul and Silas drew encouragement from each other. As Christians, we should be encouraging each other. How would the situation have been different, by the way, if Silas would not have played along? Put yourself in Silas's shoes. And I, I thought about how I would react. So Paul, he's a super Christian. Okay, whatever. I'm Silas. I'm a normal guy. Paul and I are going to prayer. We've just had this conversion. Lydia has been converted. We've got this little prayer meeting going on. We're seeing good work going on here. And then Paul had to turn around and cast this demon out of this woman. And we get beaten for it. I didn't even do anything. And now we're in prison, and it's midnight, and we're so sore we can't sleep. And Paul's like, praise God, I threw that demon out. Did you see that? That woman is free. And Silas, can you just imagine... Yeah, I'm all for having prayer meeting, okay? Lydia had air conditioning. It was nice. She had that nice couch, which was really comfortable, and I really enjoyed the hors d'oeuvres that she served. But this, Paul, this isn't what I was thinking as when we think about the Christian life. I don't really enjoy being in jail. Thanks a lot, Paul, for getting us in this situation. How do you think that would have gone? It's easy sometimes to criticize those around us who are doing things that cause us to be uncomfortable. Or perhaps they could have been in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement is not generally very useful. In fact, if you read about this, as I did this week, there's a lot of people who are involved in the, the penal system that just are like, look, our, our system of prisons and jails is a mess. And I don't want to get into all that, so we're going to talk about monkeys again. I, I came across this. Researchers have found little to success, suggest that extreme isolation is good for the psyche. In one notorious study from the 50s, University of Wisconsin psychologist Harry Harlow placed rhesus monkeys inside a custom-designed solitary chamber nicknamed the Pit of Despair. Shaped like an inverted pyramid, the chamber had slippery sides that made climbing out all but impossible. After a day or two, Harlow wrote, quote, very dryly, most subjects typically assume a hunched position in a corner on the bottom of the apparatus. One might presume at this point they find their situation to be hopeless. 
This is the interesting part. Harlow also found that monkeys kept in isolation wound up, quote, profoundly disturbed, given to staring blankly and rocking in place for long periods, circling their cages repetitively and mutilating themselves. Most re readjusted eventually, but not those that had been caged the longest. Quote, 12 months of isolation almost obliterated the animal's ability to function socially, Harlow found. My favorite line is the next one. Similar studies on human subjects are rare. I wonder why. But here's the thing. Isolation is not good. It is so important to be in a Bible-believing church. We meet people that say, well, I've accepted Christ as my Savior. Where do you go to church? I don't go to church. Why not? Well, you know, I find that I do better when I'm by myself with God. The Bible is very clear that's not the case. That is not the expectation. And we see a lot of Christians who wind up socially isolated. And then what happens? Galatians 5, chapter, 13, uh, chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, talks about Christians who bite and devour one another because they don't... In fact, let's look at it. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one to another. You'll talk to Christians that say, I don't have to go to church. I'm not under the law. The Sabbath was under the law. I'm under grace. I don't need to be part of a, a congregation. It's my liberty. Well, take care that in exercising your liberty that you don't devour one another. The monkeys in isolation became socially averse because they became completely fixated on themselves in relationship to the environment they were in. And sometimes as Christians, I think we can do that too. The world's getting darker around us and we get fixated on the environment and how it impacts us. And because we're socially isolated as Christians, we never look around and see how it's impacting other believers. And we never offer encouragement to other believers. Brothers and sisters, we need to be praising the Lord. We need to be, when, when those actions come against us, we have to have the proper reaction because it is an encouragement to other believers. So that's the first group. The second group is unbelievers. Uh, let's look in verses 25 through 28. The end of 25, the prisoners heard them as well. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. We're in Acts chapter 16 in case uh, moving around you've gotten a little behind. Acts chapter 16 verse 26, the end of the verse. Immediately all the doors of the prison were open and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison woke out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself supposing the prisoners had been fled. In Rome, if you lost a prisoner, you took their punishment. And he was going to kill himself rather than face that. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, don't do yourself any harm. We are all still here. Is that a normal reaction when prisoners find the... the okay, so I'm going to... They say don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. I'm going to break that rule. Eric works for the prison. What happens if you leave prison doors hang open? What would happen? That would be curious. Yeah, no, the normal reaction is, hey, earthquake, it's the middle of the night. My bands have fallen off. The prison door is open. This is my lucky day. 
But Paul said what? We're all still here. There was at least two other prisoners in this jail other than Paul and Silas. And I bet when Paul and Silas got thrown in there, they, those prisoners were mystified at how Paul and Silas reacted. Because that's not how I would react. That's not how they would react. And it changed their behavior. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, again, verse 13 through 16. We're going to back up and talk about verse 13 through rather than just focus on 16. So Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is speaking and he says, You are the salt of the earth. This is, by the way, the attitudes and actions of the believers that he's talking about. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith wherewith shall it be salted? It is then good for nothing but to be cast out and walked on. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it underneath the basket, but on a candlestick it lights the whole house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our actions are to permeate society. So I run a restaurant, and every once in a while in the middle of lunch, someone will order a a fry with no salt, which, by the way, is really annoying, but if you like it, feel free to order it. Why? Because we take the fries and we dump them in this little thing that we scoop from, and we salt all of them. And when you order a fry with no salt, we have to literally take a special basket and cook a special batch of fries and take a special pair of tongs that are not designed for handling fries and put fries one at a time into the basket. And it's really annoying. But why do we do this? Because if the fries touch anything in the fry area, they're going to have salt on them. The salt gets everywhere. It permeates everything. We are to permeate our society. Our actions are to reveal God within, us, within our society. Our works are to be visible to all men. Our works are to be wholly attributable to God or attributed to God, not us. Do you have a picture? Yeah, okay, so everybody knows who this is. Why is this man still in front of the national conversation? He has not played football in years. Why? It's not because of his football prowess at this point, or or baseball prowess, frankly, Um, although he may be good. I don't know. But the bottom line is people talk about Tim Tebow because he changed the national conversation because of his visible service to God and the fact that he attributed everything, every way that he reacted, which was unusual and unexpected, he attributed it all to God. Okay? We can be that. And I know, I know, I know exactly what you're going to say. Why? I'm not this guy. I'm not Tim Tebow. No, you're not. Okay? And neither am I. I can't play football or basketball or chess or backgammon or anything. Okay? I'm terrible. But that's why in, in Matthew 5, verse 16, it says, your good works. We're not judged on the Tebow scale. You're judged on the Ruth scale, or the Earl scale, or the Jerry scale, or the Nathan scale. God has created works for us. He has foreordained them that we should walk in them. We need to be Christians of praise. Why? Because other people will watch us, and it will change their behaviors. We live in uh, a society where... The, the church has been influenced more by the behavior of the world than the world has been influenced by the behavior of the church in recent years. It's just the way it is. It shouldn't be that way. It should be the other way around. Thanks. You can take that down. By the way, um, 
Anytime you speak from the pulpit, you run the risk of preaching first and foremost to yourself. You know what we were just talking about where Paul and Silas were encouraging, encouraging to each other? So I'm all excited about this. We need to be encouraging to each other. We need to know each other and love each other. So I'm an introvert. I'm not Tim Tebow. He's, I guess, an extrovert. I'm not. I One or two friends in church, that's good with me. That's all I need, okay? Other people are different. And I, I love all of you immensely, okay? But small talk is difficult. And before church, walking around, greeting each other, that for me is difficult. Standing up here doing this, not, not that daunting, but talking to you individually is a lot more daunting. And I have this routine that I do where I go down the line. And if you sit on the end, you probably shake my hand or at least say hello and that's sort of nice. People that sit in the middle, I don't know who you are, hello. Okay. Well... I met Thelma and Calice probably a year or two ago, okay? And I met them, learned their names, hello, and that sort of thing. But they don't sit on the end. So I greet the Kennedys, and I talk in their general area, but I'd never say anything to Calice and Thelma. And Calice, and Calice did not know I was going to say this this morning, but she called me over and she says, young man, come say hello to me. And I said, okay, hello. And she said, I just want you to know you always say hello to the Kennedys and you don't say hello to me. And I, I, she's not complaining or anything. She says, but I'd like to say hello to you too. Calice, hello. <laughs> she gave me a hug and I said, you're going to make it into the sermon today. <laughs> she's, she's a little embarrassed now. Look, look at people in this church. Look to people to your right and to your left. If it's your spouse, that doesn't count. If it's your mom or your dad, it doesn't count. You already know them. Find somebody you don't know and greet them today because we need to be encouraging each other. That was off the top of my head. Okay, so we need to be Christians of praise. We need to give God the glory because our actions, our reactions to opposition will change the behavior of people around us. You don't, you don't believe that you can do this. Just go to the mall. This is a lot of fun. Go to the mall, sit in the food court, and then go, and just look up and maybe point and maybe get another person to point with you. You know what will happen? Pretty soon everybody will be going. And eventually someone will come up to you and go, what are you looking at? And you go, we're expecting Jesus to come back soon. Here's a ticket to heaven. Oh, nice. I'm telling you, your actions will change the behavior of people around you. I hope you do that. Let me know because <laughs> I will be in the food court. I want to see this. Why is it important to give praise to God even in times of trial? There's a third reason that I, that I see here. It could change the impact of the gospel. Look with me at verse 30. This is like the best. Um, Acts chapter 16, verse 30. You know the story. The jailer sprang out. He was all upset. He was going to kill himself because this was the end. And he goes from wanting to kill himself to walking in. In verse 30, he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What? I mean, Acts is full of Paul and Silas walking around preaching. And I know that he heard what they were doing when they were brought in because, you know, he's like, what, what? okay, thanks for bringing me these guys that you just beat. Now what do I do with them? Why are they here? Because they're preaching the word of God. And I'm sure that as he sat at his desk and they were singing and praising God, he's like, these guys are insane. 
Nobody acts this way in my jail. What is wrong with these guys? And when this supernatural event happens, and it was supernatural, don't, don't make any bones about it, his very first thing was, okay, I'm convinced what you're saying is true. How should I be saved? It can change the impact of the gospel. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the gospel is foolishness to those who are lost, but it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, okay? We know that the unsaved world looks at this message and goes, that's nuts. That's crazy. Uh, John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, tells us that it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict men of, men, uh, men of sin, not ours. We're just to spread the gospel. Romans 10, 14 talks about the need for preachers to go forth and to share the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 21, I love this one. Since in the wisdom of God, I'll read it because I can't quote it. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not come to know God. God came and he said, okay, here I am. And his own rejected him. He says, instead of allowing men's wisdom to bring them to knowledge of God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. Ladies and gentlemen, you're being watched on a day-in, day-out basis. You can share the gospel, and you should share the gospel over and over and over with your mouth. But it's your actions, it's your reaction when opposition comes against you that brings power to this gospel. Let me, let me clarify that. The gospel is powerful. The word of God is quick and sharper than any two-edged sword. Don't get me wrong. But the gospel in action will change the impact of what you say with your mouth. People are listening to you. When we obey God faithfully and praise him, even when opposition comes because of our faithfulness to him, we proclaim the truth of the gospel with our actions. We we want to praise the Lord when reactions come against us because it will impact the people around us, both our fellow believers and un- unsaved people. It will change their, their behavior. Praise will change the impact of the gospel, and we will see people saved through the testimony of our lives. I think of Jim Elliott. They were preaching to the Auk Indians. They were martyred. And it wasn't until after Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and all those guys lost their lives that the Indians trusted in Christ. Their sacrifice, their reaction, well, their death is what made those Indians go, okay, we should start listening to this message. The last point I have today, praise will change everything. Praise will change everything. God heard Paul and Silas. Verse 26, we, th- we saw that there was an earthquake and all the bands were loosed. That was a supernatural event. God caused that to be the case. God sent an earthquake. He loosed all the bands. We know from our study of doctrines that we did in Sunday school that God does not need us. God is self-sufficient. He does not need us. But we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. God doesn't need us, but he does take joy in our actions. Those of you who are parents, do you enjoy being parents more when your children are crediting you for being an awesome parent or when they're griping about everything that you haven't gotten them for Christmas? Yeah, Blake, you have a very knowing laugh, okay? Look, God loves us. We are his children. He wants 
us to give him the credit for all the goodness that he showers down on us, even in the middle of difficulty when we're doing his will. There are times when I give my kids tasks that I know are a little bit impossible for them. And sometimes they erupt into anger. What do I want them to do? I want them to say, I can't do this on my own. Lord, I need your help. I want them to react in the right way. I don't care if they finish the task or not. What I'm looking for is the right reaction. And when they react in the right way, that dictates what I do for them next. You know what this is? Yes, I should probably. Okay. I hadn't thought about using this microphone when I thought about this illustration. This is a harmonica that belongs to one of my children. What sane parent would ever buy a small child a harmonica? I do not. Yes. Thank you, Rhonda. You and I, I think we consider ourselves sane. I bought this for one of my children because she reacted well to something that I set her to. And we went out for breakfast and I said, hey, I'm going to buy you anything in Cracker Barrel's gift shop. Never thinking they had such an insidious device for sale. What do you hear in the car after you buy your child a harmonica? Oh my goodness. Now, I've got to be honest. If it's your child, I'm like, all right, give me that harmonica. If it's my child and they're not behaving well, I'm like, all right, no harmonica for you. But on the way home, this child was playing this harmonica exactly like I did, except once in a while they'd go up and down the scale real fast. And it was awful, but you know what I was doing? I was sitting in the driver's seat. I was enjoying it a lot. Why? Because it was my child who had reacted in the right way playing that harmonica. God is watching us. God is listening to us. And he is looking for us to respond with his strength with the fruit of the Spirit in these, re, in, in these reactions that we have to people. And he takes great joy in this. Now, I want to be real clear here. We cannot manipulate God, okay? My children now know that if they respond the right way, I will buy them things like harmonicas. And every once in a while, I'll set something, and they'll come in and they'll be like, I did the job with a good attitude, and my Christmas list is on the counter, you know, that sort of thing. We're not going to be able to manipulate God. God's plans will not be thwarted. Oh my goodness, that clock. We're almost done. Hang with me. God's plans will not be thwarted. Let's look at Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 12, you know the story. Abraham and Sarah were promised a child by God, and that child was going to be the forebears of the children of Israel. And they go down to Egypt, and Pharaoh sees Sarah and goes, Woo, she's a hottie. And Abraham says to his wife, Hey, tell everybody you're my sister, you know, because I don't want to get killed on your sake. And Pharaoh takes Sarah and takes her and adds her to his collection. And the Lord had promised that there would be a son born to Abraham and Sarah. And if, if Sarah is now Pharaoh's wife, that promise is kind of off the table, right? Well, God sent plagues, and eventually Pharaoh goes, something ain't right here. And, and Abraham goes, yeah, well, she is my half-sister. She's also my wife, you know. And Pharaoh goes, what? God's will is never going to be thwarted by us. How do you think Abraham and Sarah's relationship worked after that little episode? I tried to broach the subject to my wife to see how she would react. We didn't even get there, okay? Well, Abraham did this twice. 
And then his son did it a third time. The same ploy, the same story. Did God say that he was going to create the nation of Israel out of this family? He did. And yet they did not trust God. There were plagues that came on the Egyptians. There was barrenness that came on the Philistines. And the third time, the king of the Philistines, uh, you know, he kind of knew the history with Abraham and Sarah. And now he saw Isaac and he, he kind of saw Isaac and Rebecca and he goes, you're married. Yeah. Look, anybody that touches this guy's wife, don't even think about it because I will kill you if you do. Because we know the way this story ends. And Isaac and Rebecca lived there for a year and, and the king of the Philistines came and said, we don't really want you here. Okay? And I got to think that perhaps that played into it. It changed everything. How would life have been different? How would this story have been different if Abraham and Sarah had trusted God from the get-go and said, okay, We're not having kids. This is tough because you told us we're going to have children and we haven't had a child, but we're still going to trust you. We're still going to react in the right way. I don't know. Verses 33 through 34, our time is fleeting, so I'm just going to gloss over this. You know the story. They got their wounds treated. The jailer turned them from prisoners into house guests. Would that have happened if Paul and Silas would have been railing against the system that put them there all evening? I don't think so. Their response changed everything. Now, our actions should bring opposition against us. Our actions, as we serve God, should bring opposition against us. Our reaction is what God is looking to control. And that is what will bring this power. In America, Christian life has gotten really comfortable. It just, it has. The church tends to be a safe and secure environment. And there are a lot of people who seem to be playing church, using it as a meeting place for nice people and so on and so forth. And I know that there's a lot of Christians that they just want to, You know, I go to church, it's something that I do, I've checked it off my resume, it's a comfortable place for me. The Christian life should not be that way. Let's look, though, at Acts chapter 19. This is very interesting. Acts 19, 11 through 17, and God, in verse 11, God did special miracles by the hands of Paul, just like we just saw in Philippi. So that from his body were brought under the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and evil spirits went out, and certain of the Jews, exorcists took upon them to call over those which had evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, we adjure you by Jesus who Paul preacheth. So there are these, these Jews, they were religious, and they said, you know what? That looks good to us. We want part of that game. All right, that Christian life, going to church, having a comfortable group of people that you can talk to and not have to worry about them treating you badly, we want that. So they did the same thing. There were seven sons of one guy named Siva, a Jew, verse 14, and the chief of the priests which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, I know who Jesus is, and I know who Paul is, but I don't know who you are. Can you just imagine? I I cannot, frankly. It's a little frightening. And the man leapt on them. This demon-possessed man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them and overcame them and prevailed against them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Naked and wounded, okay? So Paul and Silas did what God wanted, had opposition, and that opposition was the form of them being stripped and beaten. They were naked and wounded and thrown in jail. These same people tried to do the same thing, except they did it in their own strength. It was the same result. You cannot play at being a Christian and expect it to work out, okay? You're going to get the same result in many ways. The difference is this. 
Paul and Silas did this in the spirit. They were beaten, they were stripped, they were humiliated, but God was magnified and they had the joy of leading someone to Christ. They had the joy of freeing someone from this demonic possession. They had the joy of retaining their integrity and they had the comfort of the brethren that you see at the end of the chapter. These seven sons of Siva tried to do the same thing in the flesh. They received the same sort of consequences. God was magnified. If you look at Acts chapter 19, verse 17, it says God was magnified, and I think he was, but they didn't receive any of the joy of the relationship, uh, of, of what comes when you have a relationship with Christ. You can't expect a joyful life if you're not doing what God wants you to do. If you're just sitting in the pew and you're saying, I go to church, why am I not joyful? Why am I not having a joyful life? You've got to be out there. Your actions should provoke reactions. Your actions should provoke opposition. Are you like Paul? Or are you more like the seven sons of Siva today sitting in this pew? Now, we're about to have a baptism. Um, and um, the individuals who are going to take action, okay, Sebastian and Annie, they're going to take an action today, and there's going to be a reaction. We are going to observe this, and we being Christians are going to react in a very positive way. This is awesome. This is great. But as they go on with their life, their actions should receive opposition. It's up to us to encourage these two young people in their Christian walk. So as we prepare for this baptism, let's keep that in mind. Let's keep that in mind. What are your actions and what are your reactions? Who's watching you? Who's listening to you? Let's close with a word of prayer.